John 16, and we'll start with the 16th verse and read probably just through the 28th. This picks up with where we ended last two weeks ago. A little while, and you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of the disciples therefore said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you'll not behold me. And again, a little while, and you'll see me. And because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Amen, amen, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more. For joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy from you. And in that day you will ask me no question. Amen, amen, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Amen. The word of God. Be seated. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> My beloved wife, Carrie, where's Carrie? Oh, she's downstairs. Colin, can you get me some water? Out of the car, even. Frog in my throat. <clears throat> this past, not this week, but the previous week, thank you. My beloved wife and I, with Aaron, Carrie, Lily, Jenna, and Katie, had an incredible time in the beautiful Smoky Mountains of Tennessee and North Carolina. <laughs> Truly magnificent vistas. If you've been there, you know of what I speak. Wonderful hiking trails they enjoyed. 
and bears. Right, Lily? We took a logging road that said it was an enhanced road for passenger cars. And we saw first two cubs cross the road. Then we saw a, what I thought was a cub, but then three little ones followed the mother, a parent. And then we're driving out, and a massive, as big as anything I've seen in the zoo, walks across the road over into a man's yard. Huge. So we saw bear. <laughs> it was wonderful. Ask the girls. But I publicly thank Pastor Adrian too so much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Yeah. For his deeply touching sermon on the love of God for his beloved son and therefore for those who are in the beloved in Jesus Christ. This Pauline emphasis, of course, describing Christians as those in Christ was preceded by the Apostle John as he gave the description of abiding in Christ as a branch abides in the vine. So you see the connection. And that's huge. If I were training young preacher boys, if that, I, I would insist upon the grammar of the gospel. But one of the key things is to understand that the Johannine, John's emphasis upon as the vine and branch is connected and abide in me as I abide in the Father is then reflected in Paul's emphasis on never calling Christians Christians. In the New Testament, Paul never refers to us as Christians. We are consistently called by Paul those who are in Christ or those who are in the beloved. And there's huge depth of meaning in that. Woven throughout this final discourse, though, is the centrality of love. A love which has eternally existed in the mutual indwelling, the mutual abiding in each other by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thus woven throughout is the joyfully wondrous beauty of the child of God being drawn into this divine relational dance of love. And even more is the heaven-like joy of the children of God relationally dancing with each other in their love for one another. Hmm. As Tertullian said in 2nd century, behold how they love one another. Remember the praise given Richard Sibbs? Of this blessed man, let this praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. <laughs> Is that true of me? I return to the wondrous blessing of Pastor Adrian's message. Twice through it myself. And how profoundly touched 
I was realizing the beautiful, boundless love of God the Father for us. If you doubt that, he grew up where? In Pakistan. He grew up in one of the most hotly persecuted countries on the face of the earth. And look where he is now. Can God do something in your life? You bet he can. So I was reminded of the huge impact that our homes, our circumstances, our, our upbringing, our relationship with our father and mother makes on us. And consistently a particular letter comes back to me that I wish I'd kept, but I remember it fairly well. A letter from a prisoner who wrote and basically said, I was raised in a gang. I grew up as a boy in a gang, never really knowing who his dad or mom were. He had multiple mothers, multiple fathers. The gang was filled with violence, drugs, open and multiple sex partners. The women of the pride took care of the kids while the studs, or is it thugs, fought for primacy and control of their territory. He wrote that he grew into his teens, saturated in this life, and wound up, of course, as a young apprentice, murdering and raping, and now was in prison for life. His grammar, his printing was poor, and yet it communicated well his angst, his pain. And he basically said, if there is a God, did I even have a chance? No. And yet, I praise the Father above for the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Spirit of God, even in our day, regenerates and saves even those in a maximum security prison. Many times my eyes have witnessed radical transformation that comes off the face of the inmate to such a degree that I have seldom seen outside the walls of the prison. So from 30,000 feet, let's pause and reflect on the big picture. In 16, 5 through 11, following his discussion of the, the hatred, the persecution, the martyrdom of God's children, Jesus speaks of the gift of the Spirit for the conviction of sin, which takes the burden off us. It means I'm not responsible for the decision made when I'm ministering. Duties are ours. Can you say it with me? Events are the Lord's. Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. That's an incredible <laughs> release of the Armenian burden of productivity. Some of you don't know about that, but boy, I do. Then in 16, 12 through 16, he turns to the second thing the gift of the Spirit will bring. 
the New Testament scriptures, the New Testament canon. Canon is a word that simply means standard. This is the standard. This is the list. There are 39 in the old, 27 in the new. The canon, the standard, the list is closed. So we saw that Jesus promises through the apostles that they will receive from the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the apostles. Then they speak it and write it in Scripture. So inspiration to inspiration to inscripturation to illumination as we now encounter the apostolic preaching and written record direct from the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the Apostles. And we saw that the sufficiency of Scripture is doctrinally foundational and therefore the informed child of God does not turn to secular therapy or self-help books or gurus. Rather, the informed child of God turns to God's word. And in our day, the organization that represents this commitment to the sufficiency of scripture in all counseling is the ACBC, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And this is why we are hosting what Julie held up, what is on the doors. It will be coming to you as well through email why we are hosting this conference on the truth about porn with Brent Campbell from Reigning Grace, who is a member of the ACBC. To miss this event will be a mistake of potentially eternal proportion for you and those you love. I do not say that lightly. Well, this Lord's Day, my purpose is to explain our text, reveal some fascinating doctrine, and make even more fascinating application. Verses 16 through 22. We closed two Lord's Days ago with the question, Who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to you? Is he an actor on a theatrical stage that you just watch as you read, you see the pictures, you watch movies, TV videos? Is he just a theater actor? Or have you been to the optometrist and you now see with clarity through the Spirit, Jesus ministering to your spirit through the pages of Scripture? Who is Jesus to you? You recall that in verse 16 of chapter 16, Jesus uses two words distinct from each other to reveal something remarkable about about his earthly ministry when he was in the flesh versus his heavenly ministry now. And a good study Bible would reveal to you a difference between the two words see in verse 16 as the NASV does. The first phrase of verse 16, you will no longer see me. NASV, you will no longer behold me. Second phrase, you will see me. So while the child of God does not have Jesus on the theater stage on display today, yet the child of God sees with far 
better clarity and vision the Son of God, the man Jesus, who is praying for you and saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. Calvin's comment on verse 19 hits hard. Quote, Our duty is to endeavor that our slowness of apprehension, our slowness of understanding, may not be accompanied by either pride or indolence, laziness, but that on the contrary, we show ourselves to be humble and desirous to learn. Humble and desirous to learn. When you hit a question, what do you do? Scripture. Does it cause you to yearn to find the answer, to see the connectivity between passages, to get your references out? That's normal. It's not normal to just have it fly over your head. And while the apostle's present weakness, Calvin says, particularly upon his arrest and crucifixion, was overwhelming, yet when the Spirit would be given to them, they not only fought bravely, but obtained a glorious triumph in the midst of their struggles. You think of it from hiding in an upper room in a house for prayer to, to boldly re-entering the temple where they'd already been arrested the day before. You will lie prostrate, as it were, for a short time. But when the Holy Spirit shall have raised you up again, then will begin a new joy which will continue to increase until having been received into the heavenly glory, you shall have perfect joy. And then Christ, starting in verse 21, uses the pain of childbirth and the resultant joy at the birth of the baby to show something about their coming experience. And Christ does not speak of their sorrow, look at verse 20, of their sorrow being replaced by joy, but of their sorrow turning into joy. And similarly, the cross, a, a thing of horror, of shame and despair to them, would become their glory and joy. Paul would say, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Christ, in verse 22, tells them that the value and worth of their coming joy is greatly enhanced by its eternality. It then follows that the afflictions are light, and ought to be patiently endured because they are of short duration. Application from verses 20 to 22. Paul very similarly says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. 
2 Corinthians 4, 16, I think, to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen. Now there's the problem some of you are having, because that's exactly what you spend your time thinking about. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, but the things which are not seen are forever eternal. One far wiser than I has written, and I quote, It is God's mercy to you that he giveth you your fill, even your loathing, disgust with this bitter world, that ye may willingly leave it and arrive at our Lord's harbor and be made welcome as one of those who have ever had one foot loose from the earth, longing for that place where your soul shall feast and banquet forever and ever upon a glorious sight of the incomprehensible Trinity, and where ye shall see the fair face of the man Christ, even the beautiful face that was once for your cause more marred than any of the visages of the sons of men and was all covered with spitting and blood. And again, quote, When ye are come to the other side of the water and have set down your foot on the shore of your glorious eternity and look back again to the waters and to your wearisome journey and shall see in that clear glass of endless glory nearer to the bottom of God's wisdom. Ye shall then be forced to say, if God had done otherwise with me than he hath done, I had never come to the enjoying of this crown of glory. End quote. Hmm. I am thankful, not happy, but yes, thankful for how God has done me and is doing me. I should never have known his peace and deep, deep contentment were it not for the path he has given me. Explanation 23 through 27. Listen to Calvin's thoughts deeply. Christ now speaks of another grace of the Spirit that would be given to them 
that they would receive so great light of understanding as would raise them on high to heavenly mysteries. They were at that time slow, so that the slightest difficulty understanding caused them to hesitate and stumble. But soon, having been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, they no longer had anything to prevent them from becoming familiarly acquainted with the wisdom of God, so as to move amidst the mysteries of God without stumbling. That's what Romans 9 through 11 is. That's what the book of Hebrews is. That's what the book of Ephesians is, to move amidst the mysteries of God without stumbling. Calvin goes on, such is the import of that passage in Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer shall every man teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest, saith the Lord. Now, the prophet assuredly does not take away or set aside instruction, preaching and teaching, which must be in its most vigorous state in the kingdom of Christ. But he affirms that when all shall be taught by God, no room will be any longer left for this gross ignorance which holds the minds of men till Christ, the Son of Righteousness, shall enlighten them by the rays of his spirit. End quote. Hmm. Verses 24 and 25. The veil of the temple, this is what he's speaking of, the veil of the temple was still stretched out, and the majesty of God concealed under the shadow of the cherubim. But the true high priest had not yet entered into the heavenly sanctuary, to intercede for his people, and had not yet with his own blood and through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, thus consecrating the way to the Father by his blood. So we do not wonder that he was not then acknowledged to be the mediator, as he is now acknowledged in heaven and upon some of the earth. For he hath appeared for us in heaven before the Father, that we miserable sinners may venture to appear before him with bold confidence. For truly Christ, after his making satisfaction for sin, was received into heaven and sat down, publicly showing himself to be both king and priest as our mediator. All praise to him. Forever. Now, application from verse 24. Observe the trajectory of verse 24. Up to now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. For what do I pray? Do I pray about my happiness? Do I pray about my comfort? Do I pray about 
my ease in this temporal existence? Or am I praying that I might be filled with the joy that is Christ? What are you praying for? Are both my feet planted adamantly in this life? Or is one foot planted here and the other in heaven? (laughs) Is it joy or fleeting happiness that I desire? Well, explanation, verses 26 to 28, our last verses. Observe his closing words. He concludes with a thought in verse 25. I will tell you plainly of the Father. Look at that. When Christ is said here to intercede with the Father, let us not imagine Christ on his knees before the Father, begging, supplicating for the Father to change his attitude towards sinners. No, the eternal value of his sacrifice by which he made propitiation before God, is eternally powerful and efficacious. The blood by which he atoned for our sins, the obedience he rendered, is a continual intercession for us. Calvin says, this is 25 through 28. This is is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that we have the heart of the Heavenly Father as soon as we have placed before him the name of his beloved Son. Now, look with me at verse 26 and observe what I think was a pregnant pause following the words, in that day you will ask in my name. I think from the flow of the thought, I think Jesus here paused, reflectively, contemplated, and then with a perhaps delightful twinkle in his eye, he opened their eyes to the wonders of the Father's love. I do not say to you, that I will request the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. In this case, the ground or reason for their acceptance by the Father is the relationship in which they stand to Jesus. They have loved Jesus. They have believed that he came forth from the Father. But thinking caps on. This does not mean that their love merits the Father's love or that he loves them only because of their prior love of Jesus. Rather, they owe their love to Christ, to a prior divine work within them. And this proceeds from God's love. Or in the words of Augustine, he would not have wrought in us something he could love, were it not that he loved ourselves before he wrought it. Chew on that. But again, my expository suggestion of a reflective pause in verse 27, and my thoughts are heightened and intrigued by the word 
for love that Jesus uses here. Jesus does not say, for the Father himself agapes you. That would be the traditional primary New Testament word for love, of the love of God for sinners. Jesus says, for the Father himself phileos you. Not the primary New Testament word for love. Now, the New Testament word for love, agape, the noun, and agapao, the verb, so whether noun or verb, indicates a direction of the will and finding one's joy in benevolence toward another. But not necessarily what the other thinks is best for him, but what the one loving thinks is best. And you see how this applies to the love of God for us. Praise God he doesn't give me all the prayers I've prayed. What a fool I've been, and how majorly messed up I'd be if he had given me what I wanted. I'm thankful he's not like me. I'm thankful he knows better than my prayers. Is that you? And of this love, of this love, the scripture is replete. Jeremiah 31. I have loved you with an everlasting love. 1 John 4. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son. In respect of the word for agape, the verb agapao, as used of God, it expresses the deep, constant love and interest of the perfect being towards entirely unworthy objects, producing and fostering a reverential love in them towards the giver and a practical love towards those who partake of the same and a desire to help to seek the giver. Phileo, says Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, is to be distinguished from this in this, is to be distinguished from agapao in this. So the distinguishing mark between phileo and agape, phileo more nearly represents tender affection. Vine's Expository Dictionary. Now, yes, the two words are used at times to speak of the same relationship. The love of the Father for the Son. John 3.35 is agape. John 5.20 is phileo. The love of the Father for the believer. John 14.21 is agape. John 16.27 today is phileo. The love of Christ for the Apostle John. John 13.23, agape. John 20, verse 2, phileo. Yes, the distinction between the two verbs remains, and they are never used indiscriminately in the same passage. If each is used with reference to the same object, each word retains its distinctive and essential character. English has one word for love, 
Greek had four. We're discussing two of them. Doctrine. First, the centrality of joy, not happiness, in the child of God. Second, the eternal depth of the statement that God is love. I quote, The proposition that God is love is clearly intended to go further than the proposition God loves us. It might stand alongside other statements such as God creates, God rules, God judges. That is to say, it means that love is one of his activities. But to say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is the expression of his nature, which is to love. Now, final application. First, What is your view of God the Father? What is your view of God the Father? Do you see him as Matthew 25, Pearl of Talents, as a hard man, difficult to please, and not at all interested in your comfort or your sorrow? My dear friend, you must understand faith is exceedingly charitable, believing nothing evil about God. Faith is exceedingly charitable, believing no evil about God. You must decide if your own senses, your own understanding to come from Proverbs 3, will be how you'll assess and view your circumstances. Or if you'll trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding. You must decide if your limited, finite view of your eternal existence is superior to the Father's. It seems remarkable to even suggest the thought. But unfortunately... If you choose to believe hard things about God, there's some fallout. It's going to affect your prayer life. It already has. It's going to affect your time in Scripture. It already is. It's going to affect your sense of comfort and contentment with give us this day our daily bread. It's going to affect your sense of assurance Struggles with guilt, shame, anger, frustration, blame shifting, resistance, knowledge that you're kicking against the goat. This is not a good path to walk. It's miserable for the child of God. Second application. Why did Jesus reflectively give this incredible insight that he won't ask the Father because the Father himself loves us. Why did he say that? 
This was not, you've been in some classes, I remember my history class in Bible college, dry, monotone, you know, just, this isn't how Jesus did it. He pauses, but I'm not saying, I'll ask the Father, because the Father himself for that was you. Hmm. This does not negate Christ's intercession and prayers on our behalf, but it does reveal the heart of the Father towards us, the Father tenderly, affectionately loving us. The Father is not begrudging the request his Son makes on our behalf. Oh no, in fact, if you look at verse 27, the Father himself the Greek term autos is put there to intensify that the Father himself loves us, has tender affection for us. Third application. If scripture is sufficient for everything, there is a profound lesson here for biblical counseling. If a believer's view of their Father in heaven is based on earthly experiences, as Pastor Adrian spoke last week, everything will be skewed and nothing will truly be made right until that view of the Father is mended to align with what Scripture teaches of him. Counseling efforts, therefore, at developing coping skills are questionable at best if the view the child of God has of their Father in heaven is not aligned with Scripture. You've got to get this starting point right if you would find joy. This must be the first point of biblical correction. As in the mending, Paul says, Scripture is profitable for. Fourth and last application. Listen carefully. This remarkable statement by Christ that the Father himself phileos you, tender affection, brotherly. This remarkable statement gives us insight into other passages and relationships. I will not suggest conclusions, just point out what you may or may not be aware of. In John 21, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I phileo you. Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? John says, yes, Lord, I phileo you. Jesus says the third time, Peter, do you phileo me? And it grieves Peter. You know, Lord, that I phileo you. We need to reprocess that encounter, asking for wisdom. Then we come to Titus chapter 2, where the New Testament instruction to older women is to teach younger women to love their husbands and love their children. And you know what's coming, don't you? The word for love there is not agape. The word for love there is phileo. Older women are to teach younger women to 
have tender affection for their husbands, have tender affection for their children. That's what Titus 2 is teaching. And and what is of interest is that Ephesians 5.33 is oft quoted, the conclusion of this incredible passage of marriage, and says, Let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Husbands are not told to respect their wives. As one author says, men automatically are about honor and respect. It comes natural. Wives are not told to love agape their husbands because love is their nature's response. Why then does Titus 2 establish the command to younger women to phileo their husbands and children? to tenderly and affectionately love their husbands and children. And older women are to be instructing in this. Beloved in Christ Jesus, lighten your load, lighten your heart by laying your all upon Christ. Frame yourself for Christ and gloom not staring at your cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the depth of insight that we gain through the Son's words here. Thank you for pregnantly pausing and blessing us with this knowledge that the Father himself follows us. Thank you for the tenderness with which this strikes us. Oh, Lord, I pray for these brothers and sisters that those who are struggling with disease, with sickness, with illness, with incapacitation, that you will help them to have one foot planted here, but one foot planted in heaven. Help our eyes to be upon you and the things eternal promise those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we bless you, we love you, and we come as sons and daughters, tenderly, affectionately, filled by you, the Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.